And if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah. We're going to continue to go through the minor prophets. This is the shortest book. This is the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses. And at some point um, during our time together, we will read together all 21 verses. But let's pray together as we begin to look this morning at God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would move mightily with your spirit, that you would calm our hearts and lead us, Lord, to focus on what your Word says. We believe as a church that it is your Word as it is brought to light to our hearts by your Spirit that transforms us, makes us more into your Son, convicts us of sin and righteousness. It's where the gospel comes to light to us. And so, Lord, we ask that in this gathering today that you would bless us with an outpouring of your Spirit as we set our eyes and our hearts upon your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If we just quickly read over the minor prophets, it's going to look as though they all say the same thing. We're going to see some similar themes. We've already seen some of those uh, in the previous weeks, and we're going to see some more of those today. Themes like Israel has broken the covenant of the Lord. They've disobeyed him. They've wandered from him. They're going to be judged because they have wandered from him. But yet, in the end... The Lord is going to bless them. Those themes come back again and again, and those themes are in this book we call Obadiah. But God was wise in the way that he put his Bible together. He wasn't just repeating himself in the minor prophets. He wasn't just saying the same thing again and again. It's each one of these books has its own contribution to make to the whole. So Obadiah is no exception. And not only does this prophet mention the sins of Israel, most of his, com- his condemnation in Obadiah is directed toward the small nation of Edom. Edom is significant in Scripture because of the person who started this nation. Because you see, Israel and Edom are brothers. Israel is the name given to Jacob by God, And his older brother, Esau, was named that because he was hairy and red. Esau sounds like the Hebrew word Edom, which means red. And that became the name of the nation that came from him. And so these two nations in the prophecy of Obadiah, they have history with one another. They came from the same household. And it's important as we start that we take some time to look at their history so that we can best understand what is happening in this small book. It will help to give us some context. So let's take a few minutes to do that. We're going to look at a survey of this brotherly relationship between Jacob and Esau. There are some humorous scenes in some movies, and maybe you've had this experience personally, where you tell somebody or you ask somebody to uh, give you their story. Tell me your story. And they say, you want me to start at the very beginning? You say, yeah. And they 
actually do start at the very beginning. They start with their baby years. They go a lot further back than you were anticipating that they were going to go. Well, the story between Jacob and Esau actually goes back before their baby years. It begins in the womb of their mother, Rebecca. She felt a lot of disturbance inside of her body before the boys were born. And Genesis 25, 22 says that the children struggled together in her. And so this was long before ultrasound technology. So until this point, she would not have even known that there were two children inside of her. And so no wonder she was concerned about the movements that she felt inside of her. So she asked the Lord what all of this meant. And he told her that there are two nations inside of you that are struggling with one another. They're already fighting. And the younger one is going to be stronger or greater than the older one. And it would not have looked that way, at least initially, as these boys were growing up. Esau, who was born first, he was a rugged and strong man. He loved to hunt. Jacob, it says, was a quiet man. He was a thinker, a man of the tents. And so he enjoyed hanging out inside. And so he was preferred by his mom. Rebecca loved Jacob, but Esau was loved by his father. And through some trickery, Jacob stole Esau's birthright and his blessing. And because he knew that Esau was going to kill him, he did what was natural. He fled. He went away to live with some of his distant relatives in the east. For about 20 years, he was there, while Esau took his family and moved south of the promised land to what would become Edom. Eventually, Jacob, because he did in fact inherit the blessing and the covenant from God, he came back and lived in the land. Until along comes Joseph, one of his sons, and if you know the story of Joseph, you know how he eventually makes his way to Egypt. He gets sold there by his brothers. But it was because the Lord had planned that to happen to save Israel from a famine that was coming. So eventually, Jacob and all of his family also go into Egypt. And there they are for hundreds of years. And eventually, God uses Moses to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, take them back to the land of promise. And on their way, as they are walking on their way to the promised land, they needed passage through the land of Edom through the land of Esau, but his descendants would not allow them to pass through. They said, no way, you've got to go around. And so Edom was on the main route from Egypt to the land they were going to. And those paths that they had to walk on were very narrow with mountains on both sides. And Israel was turned away by its brother back into the wilderness. And this was something that was held against those people in Edom for generations. In a way, the sibling rivalry that began in the house of Isaac, their father, it continued on in their descendants. And Edom seemed to always, it seems, think of themselves as the bigger brother who couldn't be bothered to help little brother on his way. But that changed at the time when David became king. 
2 Samuel 8 tells us that David made war against his enemies, and one of his enemies was the Edomites. So he fought against the Edomites, and he struck them down, he overcame them, and he put garrisons of his army down there in the land of Edom, and where they became now Israel's servants. How do you think that this was received? God had said that the older brother would serve the younger, and here is where that began to happen. And if you know anything about the dynamics between siblings, the day when the older can no longer keep the heel over his younger is a, is a day of great turmoil in any house. You all have probably seen that play out in your own homes. You know, younger brother, he's weak, he's trying to get it, older brother, and he can always just put his hand out there and keep him away. But the day comes when younger brother gets big and the older brother can no longer keep him at bay. And that is what is happening here in this story. Younger brother has grown up and he's strong. And a prideful older brother is not going to take this lightly. So no doubt Edom would have loathed to be under their younger brother's foot during this time. But time went by. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, it seems to always work in cycles. Israel is blessed. Things are going well for a period of time. But eventually they wander from the Lord. They start worshiping idols. And now God has to judge his people. And then they come back to him in repentance and the cycle repeats itself. And so they, here they are. They've broken God's law. They broke his covenant. They've rejected his ways. And so the Lord in his discipline punishes his son Israel. And the timing is not certain on this, but on a day when God allows Israel to be invaded by another army, they come in and they plunder his people to punish them for their disobedience, who was there to watch and gloat when this took place? It was Edom. Edom, their brother. This was the final straw for the Lord. And this is where the book of Obadiah comes in. And he prophesies against Jacob's older brother, telling them that they are going to be snuffed out forever because of the way that they have sinned against their brother Israel. And so here in a moment, I'm going to read all 21 verses. But there are some things that I want you all to be listening for as I read. A few things to listen for. At the beginning, God is going to speak against the pride of the Edomites. They have begun to trust in their natural defenses, the things that they have. Their trust is in those things rather than in the Lord. They trust in their natural position, their geography, and they trust in their allies. And so when I say their natural defenses, their geography, the mountains in their land gave them a fortified position against their enemies that was unmatched. How many of you all have seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? I'd say a good number of you have. Up there in the booth, you all have. And so there is a place that Indiana Jones goes at the end of that movie uh, in order to get the Holy Grail. And so he shows up at this place with this giant facade on this stone wall. It's pretty remarkable looking. Can you put the picture up there? 
There is a picture that I've got here that'll give you a little bit of, of context. You don't see the picture. It should be on the slideshow. Well, you'll just have to look it up yourself, I suppose. The place is called Petra. How many of you all have actually seen Petra? Well, there in Indiana Jones, that facade that's built into that stone mountain there, that actually is a place. That is a place, and there's a little corridor that leads into it between rock walls that apparently would only average about 15 feet wide along the way. And up on either side of it are these cliffs, massive cliffs. And it is said that about 12 men could have defended the city of Petra against an entire army because that army would have had to make its way through that little walkway. So Dan's got one here. That's the stone wall, but there is, a, there is a corridor that leads to it that is very narrow that actually comes out right there into that city right there. That is where Edom is. That is historic Edom. And so these people did, they trusted in their natural defenses. They had built essentially a fortress in these mountains and in these walls. And so God is going to judge them, he says, because of their pride. The second thing I want you to hear as I read is how Obadiah describes Edom's sin on the day when Israel was plundered. You're going to notice that they start out just watching it happen. They're just observers as the plunderers come in and begin to raid the city. But what you're going to see is the natural progression of sin. That sin is not willing to stay where it is at as a simple observer. It always wants to progress. And in the Edomites, it does to where they become the plunderers themselves. And then you're going to notice the end, that God promises to bless Israel after he judges them. It is not the same for Esau. Esau and his people, Edom, will never rise again. And so the question I want to pose to you is what makes these two brothers different? Why is it that Israel will rise again and yet Edom does not? They are both sinners. And if you know the story of Jacob, you understand that this man was a sinner. And the people who followed him were sinners. Jacob's very name meant deceiver. I mean, one who's grabbing at the heel. And that is what he was like in his youthful days. And yet God, over time, takes him under his wing. But what is it that makes Israel, the descendants of Jacob, different from Edom, the descendants of Esau. So let's read together Obadiah verses 1 through 21. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If, grapes, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom 
and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For, you, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephala shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad shall possess the, the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please teach us here what you want us to see about Israel and its relationship with Esau Israel and its relationship with you, and what can we learn from the Edomites? Because there is something of them in us as well. Give us guidance, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some final history before we round this up and some application. You heard there that there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Edom did actually receive their final judgment. And so what was once a nation of descendants from Esau has actually been lost to history. Around 300 BC, their name was no longer the Edomites. They were called the Idumeans. In fact, Herod the Great and his successor, Herod Antipas, both in the New Testament, both of these men, these kings, were Idumeans. And so even when Herod had all of those baby boys killed in Bethlehem, there was still something of Esau here seeking to kill his brother Jacob. But those were the last gasps of Esau's people. And so in 70 AD, when Jerusalem fell to the Roman army, that is the last mention of these once great people in a historical record. And so God's judgment was final and actually took place in history. 
They're gone. They are no more. And so the words of Obadiah are no longer actually a prophecy. They are a reality. And so let's start there with some application. Every prophecy that we read in Scripture will someday, if not already, be reality. That is the truth. That is the case. That's what we actually see here with the Edomites in the book of Obadiah. And so this is a living book with living words that we hold in our hands. And so we confess as believing Christians that the very word of God, the words of God are here in this book. We have the privilege of holding the testimony of God in our very hands. And he promises that his own spirit is now at work inside of us, bearing witness to our hearts that all we read in here is truth. That's what the spirit of God does convicts us of what we see here, tells us that there is truth here for our souls, and conforms us to what we see here in the Word of God. And so I want you to look at the words in here as if God is speaking into your ears and saying them to you, because in a sense, that is exactly what is happening. God still speaks today, and He absolutely speaks when his word is spoken to us. And so when we read those verses in Obadiah just now, the Lord was speaking to his people. And if we're going to be serious Christians who experience genuine life change, it starts there with a confession that the word of God has authority over our lives, tells us how we are to live and we are to be obedient to it. That's the first thing we need to see here from the book of Obadiah. And I find it pretty interesting and incredible, really, that what he prophesies of has already taken place. We can look back in history and see the judgment that fell upon Edom's people, Esau's people, and know that that came by the hand of the Lord. Secondly, there is a way in the Edomites that is common to man. And it's common to us, meaning we should be able to relate to what we see in the people of Edom. We see something of ourselves in them. As people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we would all admit that there is a struggle that is, going, that is taking place on the inside of us. Is there not? Between the flesh and the Spirit. And so I don't think there is too much of a stretch to see something of ourselves in the story of Jacob and Esau between Israel and Edom. There's the renewed man in us that has been brought under the arm of our God and Father who's always at war with sin. Are you at war with sin this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are at war today with the flesh. We need to acknowledge that. So the struggle that was inside of their mother, Rebecca, when she was pregnant with these boys, that struggle carried over into the generations for centuries later. And that struggle is instructive for us all these years later as we wage war against the flesh. It's like our twin that we're always wrestling with on the inside. 
But there are lessons for us specifically in the people of Edom. We like to think that we're always victorious, that we're always, in a sense, like Israel. I guess if you know their story, you know they weren't always victorious either. But we don't want to relate to Edom, do we? We don't want to relate to Esau's people. But there is something for us here in his people that should be able to teach us something about ourselves. And so what is it that Obadiah tells us about them that we can learn from? The first thing I think we can learn from the Edomites is that the sinful heart is naturally turned against God. The sinful heart is naturally turned against God. There is something of this still inside of you. You should be familiar with this. There's something in you that is turned against the Lord. And so these people here, they trusted in their natural advantages rather than in the Lord. Look at verses three and four. Again, he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They thought very highly of their natural defenses. Nobody is gonna come up here and bring me down. Let them walk up here and try. And the Lord says, oh, you think that nobody can. You are lofty in your heart. You think too highly of yourself. I will bring you down. And so this tendency toward pride against the Lord is still inside of you. Your heart will want to go the way of Edom. We crave natural advantages, do we not? Advantages that make us secure in the world rather than what God tells us that we are to trust in him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We gravitate into trusting into something else that is natural or close by to us, something that we can grab hold of, an ideology that makes us feel more comfortable. That's what our heart will move toward. Nationally, this is certainly true. As I read this, I thought about our own country. We trust in our superior military. We trust in our natural boundaries, not our southern one, right? We don't trust in that boundary. We trust in the ones on either side of us, on the east and the west. Like we are blessed to be a people that has vast oceans on either side of us. These things give us advantages, make us feel safe. We do the same thing personally. And there's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with acting wisely in the world so that there is plenty stored up for the day of trouble. There's good biblical principle for that. But like with all other good things, there is a line in there somewhere, is there not? when we begin to sinfully trust in that thing. And it's very difficult to determine often when that line is crossed by our hearts. So we might say to ourselves, I'm just being wise and I'm storing up all this because I know there's gonna come a day when I need it and I want to bless other people with what I've stored up and all that could very well be true. But our hearts aren't willing to stay there. Our sinful hearts would like to begin to shift our trust into those things that we have stored up so that our comfort is found only in those things. We begin to trust in that rather than in the Lord. So that when your storage of whatever it is or whatever you've collected for yourself, whatever you're trusting in, whenever that thing is attacked 
in any way? Oh my. It's as if the walls of the city have been infiltrated and all your security is gone. And so our hearts will begin to trust in things like the Edomites once did. God tells us that he is to be our only trust. Not your finances, not your health, not your government, not your benefits, your possessions, not your position or your relationships. Sin is like a magnet that will cling to whatever is not the Lord. And we need to be a people who are constantly paying attention to our hearts. I know some of you here in this room actually are very good at this. And I think it's kind of rare. You're paying attention to whatever's going into your heart, whatever is coming out. You're, 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 sif- you're siphling through all of your thoughts and wondering, is this a sinful thought? Is this one not? Some of you all are paying very good attention to your hearts. You're guarding your hearts. But I'm sure there are many in this room that that is not the case, that you're just living. You're not paying attention for sin. It's like the Holy Spirit should be like a bloodhound inside of us that is constantly sniffing out sin wherever it is and then attacking it. So that's my hope as we see what's going on here in Edom that we'll examine our own hearts and understand that our hearts aren't so different from theirs. We're tempted to draw away and trust in things that are not the Lord. I want you to also notice that sin worked in their hearts not just against the Lord, but against their brother Israel. So their sinful hearts naturally turned against their neighbor. And so they are condemned, are they not? Because they did not love the Lord with all their heart, but they are also being condemned here because they did not love their neighbor, their brother, as themselves. And so in verse 11, it starts, I don't know what your translation says, but mine says it starts with him standing aloof while Israel is being plundered. And aloof just means you're watching, you're standing back, You're paying attention. You've got some separation or some distance there between you and what's going on. Standing aloof, standing by. I think we can all relate. There are going to be times when you are able to help in a neighbor's life. Make a difference. And you're right there. You're in proximity You've got it with you. Last week we were in Proverbs chapter three. It actually says this. Do not withhold from your brother what is in your hand when it's in your power to give it to him. We're all sometimes close by a need. And it's almost as if we have been placed in that moment to be the person to meet the need. But there is a temptation in the heart that says, somebody else will come along and help that brother. I need what I've got in my hand. That's what's going on here in Edom. They're standing by while their brother is being pillaged and they are just watching. They could have done something. Now they might have died in the process. They could have done something though to help their brother and they did not. They simply watched. And this is the way that sin begins. Often it just begins as us being observers to it. But sin does not want to stay an observer. I think you probably know from your own experience that this is the truth, but that is what is being fleshed out here in the experience of Edom. 
So sin wants to progress. It always wants to progress. And so this sin that started standing aloof eventually morphs itself into an evil attitude. So they were just watching. But now here in verse 12, notice that they begin to gloat. God says, don't gloat. Don't boast. Why does he say that? Because that's what's going on. They're watching. Now they're beginning to gloat over what is happening to their brother. So, well, you might say, if you see something like this taking place, you've watched somebody else that seems to have gotten away with evil over time, and now you begin to see what's happening, and you say to yourself, she's just getting what she deserves. I'm going to enjoy this. You might not say it out loud, but there's something inside of your heart that says that, is there not? Oh, I'm going to like this. Let's see how this unfolds. So an evil attitude begins to develop. And we dealt with some of these issues when we were going through 1 Corinthians 13. We talked about envy. We talked about pride and selfishness. These sinful impulses that will lead us to secretly rejoice in the misfortune of other people. And that being the opposite of love. That's hate. That's not what Christ has called us to. But we are tempted to go in that direction. And so we are not so unlike the Edomites as we might like to think. And we can learn from the attitudes that they have toward Israel. But then notice again the progression. This leads to in verses 13 and 14. It says here, do not enter the gates of my people. So now they were watching. They were gloating. Now they're inside. They've gone in with the pillagers. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in their day of distress. They are now participating in the evil that took place against their brother. Watching, standing aloof, Attitude, gloating, now inside the city, participating in the sin themselves. This sort of thing happens in riots. You can see this happening. We've seen some in our own country in recent years, and I'm sure there have been scores of people who have just started out watching. It's like, oh, look what's happening out there. Other people out there looting and burning, destroying property, and before they know it, what's going on? They've walked outside, and they're now participating in what's taking place. That's how it becomes a full-scale riot with a mob. And so sin will cause us to end up doing and thinking things that we did not think were initially possible. Like, I'd never do that until you find yourself doing it. That's what sin does. And so Edom's sin progressed from a place of aloofness to the point where they were pillaging the city to the point that they were actually with the enemy, rounding up the Israelite brothers and turning them in to their tormentors. Isn't that awful? Edom joined into the persecution of their own brothers. They captured them and brought them back. It says they stood at the crossroads and waited for them to carry them back to their captors. I will tell you that this temptation 
is alive and well today, but maybe not in the way that you would expect. We live in a time where it is culturally acceptable, even beneficial to your reputation, if you will take shots at Christians. And so in a sense, an army has broken through and they're tearing down various elements of society, and there are some Christians out there that are not taking it lying down. They can't stand to see the name of the Lord mocked. They can't stand for unholiness to become a common thing around them, so they speak out. And let's say that you are there just watching this take place, maybe on a public forum, somebody else's social media feed wherever these discussions take place out in our culture. And so your sinful tendency in that moment may be, you know, I don't want these people to pillage me like they are pillaging my outspoken brother over there. So I am going to find my own way of attacking what I don't like about Christians because I'm not like them. I'm a reasonable Christian. So you want them to affirm you in some way, and you get that by attacking your brothers. And before you know it, you are in a place where you have unwittingly become a pillager, a plunderer, an aid to the enemy, rather than finding helpful ways to stand with your brothers in Christ. And you may disagree in some ways with how they engage the culture or what they're saying and what they're doing. But be careful that you don't become like the enemy that is attacking your brother, Israel, the church. And so a craving for the acceptance of the invading army will lead you to become one of them. James Boyce, some of you all will know that name. He was a good preacher and commentator, teacher. He speaks to this from his own experience about 40 years ago. This is what he says. He says, I may be wrong in this, but I believe there are some Christians who spend more time serving the enemy by delivering fellow believers into the hands of unbelievers than they do serving God. We need to understand that sin is cunning. It's deceitful. It knows you. It knows your heart. It's paying attention in there. It's like a living organism, like a cancer that's on the inside, looking for the path of least resistance. And if it sees this in you, it will use it to its advantage, and you will become an attacker of your brother rather than a helper in the day of need. So we can learn from the Edomites and their treatment of their brother Israel. One last thing to say here about this text, and I hope it's the most encouraging thing here. It's the last verses. Usually in these minor prophets, it is the last verses that encourage us the most because they tell us about Israel's future blessing. The day will come. This is what, I, this is what Obadiah is saying. The day will come when Israel will possess all of Edom and more. Like your territory is going to spread you're going to overtake the land. It's going to be yours. It's going to go, these boundaries are going to continue to, to move outward. So Israel is going to rise again, is what he is saying here. Israel's going to rise again. God's purposes are going to be worked out, and his people will be blessed. But I want you to think with me. 
Israel was not innocent, not in any way. The reason that they were pillaged by a foreign army to begin with is because they had turned their back on the Lord. They had acted disgracefully. So God poured out judgment on them in very real time. And we've already seen how sinful Edom was in their treatment of Israel. And so they got theirs. So both of these nations, in a sense, were getting theirs. They were getting what they deserved for the sins that they had committed. And so are we to conclude from this, because Israel is going to rise again, are we to conclude from this that Edom was so much worse than Israel was? And that's why their people eventually get snuffed out while Israel gets blessed. Is that what we're to conclude from this? Israel was just better than Edom? Not at all. So what is the difference between these two nations. And we could even say, what is the difference between these two brothers? What makes Jacob different than Esau? It's grace. It's just grace. Grace makes all the difference between Jacob and Esau. Israel was no different than Edom, except for the grace of God that he sovereignly chose to give them. He chose Jacob in the womb of Rebekah before either boy was born and had done anything good or evil. Jacob was a wicked deceiver of a man, and Esau was a fool. They would both grow up to be nations, as we have seen. One was a sinful people, the other was a sinful people. But the difference was that Israel was marked out by God for grace to bring him glory. Edom was not. Both men, both nations could have been completely left in their sin and God would have been perfect and just and holy in condemning them both. They both could have just gotten what they deserved and been snuffed out in the end and all voices could have praised God for his holiness and the way that he took care of that. But to demonstrate his own love for the world, for men made in his image, to show his mercy towards sinners and his power over that old serpent, the devil, God set his gracious seal on Jacob so that this sinful people would know his love and be changed by the free gift of grace. And eventually, God would bring his son Jesus through the bloodline of this people Israel, and Jesus would be the conduit that God would use to save them and you. And so there was nothing in Jacob or Esau that caused God to give grace to one and not the other. And the same could be said about every person who is here today. And so if you have eyes to see the ugliness of your sin, if you can see something of Edom in you, that sinful tendency, that sinful heart, so if you can see that this morning, but you also have eyes to see the glory and the goodness 
of your Savior, it is because God has chosen to give you grace that you do not deserve. You and I do not deserve it. We deserve what Edom got. We deserve to be snuffed out. But grace has made all the difference in your life. Much of this is mysterious to us. It gets into the sovereign paths of God that we do not have perfect access to, but the Bible is clear that grace alone has made all the difference in a believer. It is not anything that you have done. You have earned nothing from the Lord except judgment. That's what you have earned. But in Christ Jesus, you have been blessed with everything. Everything. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And because you have been joined to Jesus because of grace, you get all of that. He deserves those things. And now being joined to him, we get them with him. It is simply an act of God's grace. And so I ask you this morning, do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you have eyes to see this stuff? You need to praise God for that because he put eyes in your spiritual head to see Jesus and love him. Have you ever asked yourself, like think back to the time when you became a believer and some of you in this room were in a place and you were amongst other children or other teenagers or other adults where you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? How many of you all were in a setting that was public when you were around other people? When you became a believer? A few of you. Some of y'all may have been in a more personal setting. For those of you all who were in public, when you heard the gospel, what do you think made the difference between you having ears to hear it and these other people around you didn't hear it like you did? All of a sudden, it became the best news in the world. But there is a God who sees me, loves me, and in spite of my sin, he came into the world to save me. He sees all of my junk not just the stuff that other people see, God sees it all, and yet he still loves me. And Jesus came to die for that. You see it, you believe it, you rejoice, your life is changed, but all these other people around you, nothing, crickets. So what is it that made the difference? Was it because you were so smart? Was it because you were paying attention and they weren't? Was it because you had done some good that these other people hadn't and God looked down on you and showed you mercy? No. It's just his mysterious grace. He could have left you over here. But out of his loving kindness toward you for whatever purposes he has, to the glory of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1 says, forever and ever and ever he cannot wait to show you the kindnesses that he has stored up for you that come by grace so that God gets all the praise. I don't get any of it because there was nothing in me to commend me toward God. I was not more willing. I wasn't a better listener. I was not better in any way than anybody else. God simply said I'm saving that one. We see that in Jacob and his story with Esau. And that same thing continues to play out again and again throughout history. Now, we do not know as a people 
who it is that will receive it. We preach to all in hopes that God might save all. And that's what we prayed for in a revival last week when we talked about revival. Oh, God, give grace, because that is what makes all the difference. And so this morning, I simply want you to set your eyes on the God who is the giver of grace, and the only thing that makes you different if you have ears to hear it is him, not you. And that's why we come into this place and worship him alone, because we're saved by grace alone. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, your ways are wonderful. Your plan is perfect. And we as a people confess to you this morning that we do not understand all things. But what is clear in Scripture is that grace makes all the difference. It was the difference between Jacob and Esau. And it's the difference between your church today and the unbelieving world. Lord, we pray that more and more will hear the gospel and receive your grace. We will praise your name. But even in this moment here, as we sit here just thinking about ourselves, I pray, Lord, that there is personal worship in this room. You have been good to us. We earned nothing from your hand except judgment. Jesus Christ has earned everything on our behalf. And so we, as his people, give praise to him. Lead us, Lord, even in some silent worship as we close this morning. And may we confess our delight in you for your glorious, glorious grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.